listened to a lot of them, so I'm okay. familiar with them. Okay, awesome. Yeah, he, yeah, it's a lot of dick jokes. I'll try to keep it um, tame because I'm sure like age and shit. So I <laughs> I'll try to ease up on the dick jokes. All right. Yeah. No, no promises, but I'll try to ease up on them. <laughs> right. No, I, I, I could put the the earmuff, uh, you know, filter on for everybody. So, yeah. Right. <laughs> okay, you ready? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Collective Podcast. Today we got my friend uh, David Sherwin on. He's um, currently an interactive designer and also a creative director, um, or more of like what a principal design director up up at uh, yeah. Frog. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I uh, got in connection with him through a massive project that um, they just had actually finished up. We can't really talk about, obviously, um, due to details and stuff. But that's how I came into understanding. Uh, get, got to meet David and uh, an awesome person, and I found out that he actually wrote a book that's really close to the things that I admire and love um, within the industry. It's more about, you know, how to manage your design, the success of being a business person also by doing design work. Um, it's a uh, design by success is one of the books that he's created. He also created uh, another book I haven't been able to dig into yet, but it's called Creative Workshops, 80 Challenges uh, to Sharpen Your Design Skills, which I thought was um, another book that I'm probably going to jump into after this uh Design by success. It's filled with a lot of great details, um, really well laid out, really well um, just executed all together. When I'm reading this, it's cool. Um, oftentimes, I read a book and you know it's like Stephen King or somebody I'll, I'll never meet probably or I don't have connection to. But David and I have had a lot of fun conversations. We worked together um, for what a couple months probably off and on. Yeah. And so we got months. Yeah. yeah, we got a chance to know each other, you know, on a friendship level and it's cool to read a book by somebody and I'm just sitting there reading it and going like, "Shit, man, this is like really impressive. This is a ton of work that this person put into." And it's cool that I actually um have an interaction with him and it's and it's cool to meet somebody that's created something that as big as this. It's a big accomplishment to me personally by seeing it when somebody puts that much work and effort into it. And if you're listening to the podcast, there's going to be links to all this stuff. I highly recommend the book, um, at least Designed by Success, because that's a that's the book that I'm currently digging into. And then, of course, if you're into that, I'm going to do the same thing and get the 80 challenges to sharpen your design skills. There'll be links to them um, to get a hold of them. But without further ado, I mean, David does a bunch of other stuff as well. He's uh, He also speaks at um, California College of the Arts, right? You're like a senior yeah, lecturer? Yeah, I teach there. there. Yeah, you teach yeah, there. I- which is awesome as well, and that's a whole other thing to talk about. And then he also shreds at the drums, so, yeah. <laughs> and he's a huge music connoisseur. That's another thing that we've uh, been able to talk a lot about because I'm totally into music and addicted to it and on all forms. So, um, But, yeah, man, thank you so much. And this is we've been trying to set a time up to get um, this going. There's been a lot of stuff that's keeping him busy and there's a lot of stuff that's been keeping me busy and then i didn't want to have a podcast with him until i could really put some solid time into his book so i can extract a lot of things to make this a really usable podcast so but um yeah thanks buddy i really appreciate you coming on man i'm really honored to be on this podcast i've been listening to it for a while and um you know 
I remember one of the previous ones, someone was saying, like, you know, you said, everybody always says, I feel honored to be on here. And it's like, really seriously, it's really awesome to be talking with you and working with you and understanding how what you do is concept artist and also as a person and a friend has been really awesome. So I'm really happy to talk about any of the topics. We just, you know, like whether it's um, business of design from the book Success by Design or whether it's about creativity because you had a chance to get a taste of that when we worked together in terms of like to improve our creative capabilities. And then I'm working on a project right now that's about how to improve people's storytelling skills. So any, all that's fair game. Awesome, man. I mean, there's so much to talk about, really. I mean, let's go ahead and, um, and, and thank you as well. Like, thank you for your kind words. And, and you know, like it's, it's people, it's the guests, it, it's the guests that make this so special for everybody that's listening. You know, it makes it validated. It validates the time that you sit here and you listen to this stuff. And it makes me feel like, you know, it's worth me putting all the effort in. And thank you for being gracious. Just like everybody else that's been on this podcast has been incredibly humbled and awesome. And, and everybody that's listening, I appreciate all the love. So yeah, I want to dig into um, kind of, Let's go ahead before we get into the nitty gritty details of the book and what the, the, the things that I really want to extract. And, and, and my goal with this is, is you have um, when I'm reading this, I, I'm, I'm, I like to tend I tend to, to lean towards just like I just want to create and have fun. And, and I just want to party. I want my cake and I want to eat it too kind of guy. So I'm very unrealistic and I have been and I've, and I've fallen on my face many times with, within developing myself as a business person. And thankfully, I mean, not everybody has such an awesome wife like I do. My wife, is, is she manages a lot of what I do now, especially because of how busy and crazy it gets. But there's a lot of people out there that aren't as lucky as, as I am to have a spouse that's willing to put the time in or is, is capable and able to do so. And, and so I want to arm as many people as possible with all these great skill sets and then also allow them to go and get the book to apply it to their own setup. You know, I have like friends that just recently started up their own design studio and I'm super pumped on their their growth. And then I also have like friends that are just starting out learning how to do concept art or learning how to design. So I think all these things, all these skill sets and all the things that you really dive deep into, like you completely really like you analyze them and you just you, you devour them and, and spit back all the good parts of them. And I really want to just like expose those as much as possible and talk about case studies, talk about, you know, what can help, what can work, what doesn't work, you know. So I have a laundry list of stuff. And so before we get into that, I want to kind of talk to you about like how this all come about. Like, um, you know, it's a big decision to obviously make a book. Um, a lot of people might say they want to make a book and not understand the process or how, how long and how difficult it takes. Can you talk a little bit about the details of those? Sure. So, yeah, the book, it didn't start out as a book initially. It just started out as I had um, transitioned from being somebody who's just a graphic designer and I was working in design teams and sort of focused more on crafting really good branding work and I was working more so in advertising and marketing. And I started to transition into a role where I had more oversight and management responsibility. And when that happened, I hadn't spent a lot of time going out and actually doing things like writing proposals or um, helping to manage the workflow or having responsibility for profit and loss on projects. And as I had more of that responsibility, I began to realize how little I really understood how creative businesses functioned. And 
when I had been working doing design as a freelancer, I don't think I did a particularly good job of managing risk and getting people to sign contracts. And a lot of the things that you'd think were the basics in you know, the nitty gritty. And I'd had some bad experiences through that process where yeah, I hadn't been clear about um, payment schedules or I hadn't been clear about what types of things I was doing on a, a project. And this was like 10 years ago. Uh, I, I'd suffered a bit in terms of what I was doing as a freelancer. And so when I was working at, at a studio where you have responsibility for, you know, a lot of people, you know, there's a lot of people working together. And I realized that I had done a pretty decent job of mastering the design process and creating decent design work, but I had did a good job of really understanding how that contributed to running a really good business. So it's part of the, re the reason I started diving into this subject is because I started going online and looking for blogs and looking for two books that were really going to give me what I needed to know to learn that. And I didn't find a lot of material and the stuff that I did find, some of it wasn't very consumable. Like I was just like, gosh, this stuff is really, if I was, you know, uh, an accountant reading this book, it, I would make perfect sense. But a designer has a short attention span. Usually <laughs> like, I know I'm a very short attention span. Yeah. So it's like, I said to myself, Gosh, some seems like a huge idea for somebody to go and find out how to take up this information and make it digestible for designers. So I started a blog that was about just me whenever things were coming up at work and my and it's like jobs ago, just sort of like whenever things would happen, I'd just have my little journal, take it out and be like, okay, here's what happened. Here's how things went well. Here's things you didn't go well. Why did that happen? What could I do in the future to make sure that doesn't happen? And I just kept this, this log of successes and failures. And I started just writing blog posts out of that that would sort of document those different facets of my experience. And I'd also go and talk to friends that worked at studios or that were freelancers and ask them how they were doing. And they'd tell me when things were working well for them or not. And it was capturing that. And, at first, I just was just writing on my blog. I didn't promote it. I didn't put it out there in the world. I was just writing it. And after a couple of months, all of a sudden, there was a thousand people reading it with no promotion, promotion of it. What they realized just spreading that there was this. There was definitely an audience for people that needed this information, and they needed it in a way that they could just take and immediately use. Yeah. But there wasn't sort of like this digestion step to figure out how it's applicable to them. I realized there needed to be something where people could just take it as tools and just plug it right into their business, plug it into the freelance business, and they could just start using it. So that was when I realized that if I kept blogging about it for a substantial period of time, it could be something that became something that you could put up on your shelf and everybody would just pull it down and refer to it when they needed it. And so after I wrote my first book, uh, Creative Workshop, when I was done with that book, I turned back to this blogging I've been doing about design business and saying, okay, do I want to commit two years of my life to take a lot of this information, do a little more research and boil it into something that would be sort of like, for me, the last word for myself, that I put it up on the shelf that I understand this topic and it's something that anybody could potentially pull down and use, like operationalize as a business. Yeah, which totally that's what it is that's what that's how that's how it works for me when i was reading it it was that's what was um it was it was it was intense it was it was deep full of like really great notes and and, and opinions and thoughts on how to do it in it but it's but it's dead it's not it's hey all right we're back <laughs> was that me or was that you the connection uh unsure yeah it keeps cutting in and out uh okay 
we'll just keep going. So you were talking about like how you had your blog. It happens on most podcasts. So because um, Skype in the internet itself is isn't always super reliable. So especially if I'm talking to somebody across like the world. But um, yeah. But um, if it cuts out again, I'll just let you know. Let you know. But um, but you were talking about how you had your blog going, and then that kind of spawned into a bit of a following, which then spawned into you feeling like. You know it's time to you know put more action to it and then you decided to create the architecture of the book and you in the big th- the big principle for you like you said I think was to make it easily accessible and easily digestible for designers is right yeah or people with yeah with, with ADD <laughs> yeah well I also also my pro- my process I'm kind of when I do a project that's kind of uh, I would say in the nonfiction space I like to go out and get people's feedback on it as quickly as possible. So when I wrote Creative Workshop, I taught two 10-week classes where we went through all of the challenges in the book with people and the different tools that are in the book. And we did it. Like, we just went through all all 80. And the, the ones that ended up in the book weren't the ones we started with based on the feedback of people doing them and the way they use the tools, everything changed. And so... With Success by Design, I took a similar approach where I was given, uh, my friend Mark invited me to curate a series called Design Business for Breakfast, where from 7.30 to 8.30 in the morning every month on like a Wednesday, there'd be me and some person from a studio would come in and talk about a topic and I'd collaborate with that person if they were like a project manager or an account manager, a studio owner. And we'd pick a topic and talk about it. And we'd do an in-depth presentation that sort of captured all the information we talked about. Mm. And that was sort of like V1 of the book where we would say, okay, we're going to talk for an hour about project management. And we were getting, for 7.30 in the morning in Seattle, we were getting like 50 or more people for some of these. Wow. Which is that's, kind of amazing. That's early as hell. <laughs> it, was, it's, it was super early. And also there are people driving from other cities wow. to come to it. Like from, there's one person who came down from Canada. So we were kind of stunned by the um, interest in the topics. And so I had been blogging about this for a while. I'd been doing these interviews and these collaborative presentations with all these people I knew in the community that I really respected that were great at what they did. And so after I'd gone through that whole process and we'd done essentially four talks, I stepped back from that and I sent the talks to my publisher and I said, this smells like a book this you know based on the feedback we're getting from people and the way and the book has a lot of the uh, style of those lectures like there's not a lot of text there's a lot of there's visual wit instead of explaining topics through words we try to use pictures or diagrams sort of get basic concepts across we tried to pull a lot of that into the book and i made sure as i was writing the book i had some collaborators uh, erica goldsmith fiona robertson remley and david conrad were really pivotal and I was they had helped really with those early lectures as I was writing the book I'd provide back to them different chapters for feedback and they'd help me make sure I was being accurate just like uh, stuff about I'm not an accountant or a bookkeeper I don't know that space very well so I made sure I interviewed people that did that and they vet all the content to make sure I wasn't putting out any information that could be mistakenly erroneous and even then there's a big disclaimer saying you know don't expect if you do all these things exactly as they're written here you have to like consult with the professional which is like one of those lessons learned for anybody yeah running course. a business it's like you can't you know you're not going to be smarter than a lawyer about the law you're yeah. not going to be smarter than a bookkeeper about how to keep books you, know, you, you can be educated your- enough to be like not an idiot though that's the cool thing it's like yeah. you know you do like 50 percent, and then the rest is there for their profession you know 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is rad. I mean, that's cool that you saw the potential in that. Not everybody will see those kind of things, you know, as like, you know, like I'm, I'm sure for you is like a, a, a big bright light. It's like, Oh, this is, there's a lot of attention here. There's something here to help others or there's people that, you know, are seeking out the same information. I should consolidate it and make a, a digestible book, you know, which is rad. So, but yeah. sorry. Part of it's part of it's selfishness too, though. Cause for me, it's like, wow, I get a chance to actually know this stuff now. Like it's not just sort of swirling around. Yeah. It's a chance for me to just be like, okay, because I'm the kind of person where I have to write it out. I have to make something to remember it. So for me, it's like a way for me to really like bring it all together and really understand it. But in the end, of course, it's something where I know if I do that for myself, everybody's going to get a benefit out of it. And totally. if I can just get it out there. Yeah, that's the thing, right? I mean, the benefit of sharing. Um, it's cool. Like another thing I was trying to think about, because when I read books, I try to think of, especially books like what you've presented and created, I try to think of like, really what is happening here that I'm reading like I I mean of course there's the details but I like to see the overall thing and I think what it is that that I pulled from it there's many things but it's like we live in a consumer society right and 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 our exchange of 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 our time spent on thing is is the um the exchange of currency money and what you're doing is saying that okay yeah of course we want to be able to to live and enjoy what we do but we need to be smart and and precise about how we work within this industry as consumers or as um you know providers of services and and i thought that was for me that was the main thing um because it was more about like perfecting your science i guess as a business person you know like because like i think in the beginning the beginning chapters you were mentioning how you'd have these local gatherings um and then you'd have um Everybody would be, you know, just kind of talking about their day or complaining or whatever it might be, like a waterhole or whatever. And and the thing that kept coming up was it wasn't complaints about the design. It was more about the business. And that's when you started to realize from this is from the stuff that I read from the book. But mm-hmm. so you started to realize that, you know, the problem or the issues that people are having, at least as designers, is that they are lacking the uh the ability to have a good business and just from my overall experience from it that's what i felt because it's like it's like perfecting your experience with these things you know and i think that's a really key important aspect to all this stuff you know so yeah well you think about it this way it's you spend so much time honing your craft as a designer and so that is manifest in the work like you're making this incredible work but you have to know how the craft of how to ensure that you protect the, the ability to do that and so I'd never thought about business as a craft. I thought about it as sort of like a necessary evil. And it's, I realized <laughs> going through the process, it's like, it's not evil. It's the way you do the work. Yes, so, absolutely. So it's kind of like, so it's one it's of those of like reverse. Yeah, the frame of mind flip where it's like, whoa, all this stuff is absolutely essential to what's going on. It's, you know, the, the lifeblood of the business is being able to provide this skill or cap- this service or capability. And I think... A lot of the designers who choose to move out of services into making products and things like that, they're just shifting who their customers are. Yeah. Like people who get really excited about saying, I'm gonna move from doing um, I'm gonna move from doing motion graphics work to making my own films. Well it's like now your clients are the consuming public that yes. are going to enjoy it. So you have to entertain them yes. rather than the people you've been making it for. Yeah. It's a necessary thing though. I, and that's funny that you bring that up because I grew up and I and I and I used to think that all these things were kind of an evil kind of thing like you were mentioning and and that not until I realized that 
it's just part of the process and it's part of it, it it could become a fun game of numbers if you like allow it to be and it could be like this fun experience um then i started to really engage with it and have fun with it and now it's like like i think we've talked about like biometrics of you know like we talked don't you have like a watch that helps you with your like notice noticing your sleep and we've had a lot of talks about all that kind of stuff as well it's like some of us like to know information and the people that do for me personally i like to know a lot of information so i can get like you know the whole spectrum i suppose you know and i think um i think it's important when you're dealing with all this stuff to have all everything that you can get a hold of you know it just makes it more it makes it more of a fun experience for me personally you know so if i'm going to do business or something like i should know about it you know or understand it and get as many books or advice from as many people as i can you know so but it's just a game for me, at least. That's how I look at it. It's a game of life. <laughs> yeah, just like the board game. But yeah, so that's cool that that came about from that. I mean, it's cool that it came from a, an honest, um, direct point. You know, most most of the best things in life do. Did you feel like because it was such a natural um, kind of occurrence that happened over how much? How long was the span of time before you realized that you were going to make the book? Uh, I started the blog five years ago. And the book, like really realizing that it needed to be a book, was about three years ago. And okay. it took about two, it took, took a year and a half to write the book, and it took about six months to design. And then I did a whole redesign and rewrite of it before it came out. So it was a full two years on top of a uh, full time job and also teaching at California College of the Arts. So yeah. it, was definitely a, it was definitely a labor of love. I can't say I'm going to repeat that process again. <laughs> Yeah, was it a lot of sleepless nights and just like a lot of headache for the first it, bit, or? Uh, I, I would say that I was deliberate about saying, and my my wife was a saint in this, going on little retreats. I lived in Seattle when I was finishing the first draft of the manuscript, and we just went to San Juan Islands, and I did a swap where I traded some web design for staying in a like a cabin. Oh, and I just, okay. And we'd spend the week at the cabin and I'd hang out with my wife for a couple of hours and then I'd write for like eight hours and take oh, a break okay. for dinner. And so it was just finding those like pockets of time to just be really intensively focused on the task with no distractions, no internet, to get like the first draft of it out. And that was really, past that point, a lot of it was just finding time in the margins or on travel or you know, if I'm on a plane, I'll spend an hour or two chipping away at it or when I was laying it out that was during the design phase was definitely where it was more more late nights and early mornings to just spend time perfecting the details because I knew if it was going to be for an audience that was for designers there had to be a lot of thought put into the presentation and the design system the typography the illustrations that I wanted it to be very crisp and so that takes a lot of time on top of just making sure the prose is really well crafted yeah did you that that's cool that you had the cabin thing i was just i just rewatched uh, misery like a couple of times i was studying it and that, <laughs> that that's such a fucking awesome story like it's so cool like the way it's all put together and and it's funny um all these little nuances that i think stephen king has as a writer you know these these little things where he has like that you know that glass of expensive wine and the cigarette and all that stuff all these little things and he's in the cabin to do go write his story it's funny it just was like a because it's fresh in my memory it's funny just imagine you 
in the in the cabin dealing with misery. <laughs> no, <laughs> just joking. Did you uh did you read up on some books about like, you know, how to write a book? Was that kind of something that you studied as well? You seem very analytical and and, and you've you're very much like a you think you're big time on thinking and, and analyzing things, um, just from my experience of working with you. Did, is that something that you did, you know, pre-book, is, is take a good chance yeah. to understand yeah. what you're going to do? Yeah, well, I think when I was really young, I was really obsessed with things like science fiction, photography, art, writing, computers, like a real mix of things that were both on the analytic and the intuitive sides so i found like the high school not high school i guess it was like the junior high literary magazine and i'd written some awful poem for it and in my bio i said when i grow up i want to be a software designer or a writer or both and i had totally forgotten about this because when i went to i went to a tech a tech high school and when i was at that school i was really into computer science and photography design and art, like getting the first issue of Ray Gun and the first issue of Wired, which I guess is dating me. Yeah. Was getting, this, getting those two David magazines. David Carson. Yeah, David Carson. Yeah, we're like, like a bomb going off in my head, like, whoa, <laughs> you can like, so that was when I got really serious about learning Quark and Photoshop. And every, back then you use those tools to hand composite print designs and then shoot them with a stack camera. So. I'd be like making these crazy wild compositions and designing stuff and it was very exciting to me. So when I went to college, I went for systems engineering, but uh, I was really excited about the design component of it, especially things around product design. There's a lot of things about user experience that were happening even back then. This is in the early 90s. I didn't even know that's what it was, but it was really cool. And I found that much more interesting than taking really intensive physics classes or math or whatever. So I ended up flipping from being an engineering major to an English major and I got a degree in English, but I, I was always on the side designing and I took classes in design there and was just very excited about it. And so when I graduated from school, I ended up going to work as an editor and writer for a magazine. I also ended up being the designer for it and I ended up getting into grad school for writing. So I got a lot of ed um, education in the craft of writing, but it was often Whenever I wasn't doing that, I was designing because that was sort of like the way I was paying the rent. Yeah. And so, so I took some time off. I actually dropped out of grad school because I was thinking to myself, I really want to focus on being a really great designer. And I feel like I'll come back to the writing and I feel like I had much to say. To be honest, I didn't have much to say back then. Mm. I had an appetite, but nothing really, no real deep well of life experience. So I took five years off from writing and I just focused on trying to be the best designer and artist that I could. Okay. And I was, so I moved to Seattle, played drums in rock bands, worked as a graphic designer at a design, at a design firm. Um, and that was, and did photography and just sort of like tried to really hone my craft and all these different things. And at a certain point, when I started to migrate out of being a graphic designer to managing designers is when I started just writing again. And so like blogging was one of the first things I did that reactivated my interest in writing. And that's sort of drawing from that experience I had when I was much younger. And yeah, it's, so, it's kind of a trend for a lot of writers too, it seems. A lot of people that I know, they do the blog thing. If that kind of breaks the surface for them. It becomes yeah. this casual event for them to kind of release these thoughts without having like the whole process of fucking making a book, which can be so daunting, I imagine. 
It's just like a little bit of risk and then you get a lot of reward and just kind of throw it out there. That seems to be a, a kind of a common thread for a lot of contemporary writers these days, it seems. The blogging to transition, you know, so. Yeah, it wasn't plan. Yeah, it wasn't part of the plan. It was just no, of course not. It's like I was like, friends just said, "Hey, why don't you just?" I would just write something up and share it with them and be like, "Oh, that's pretty cool. Why don't you just put it on the internet?" And I'm like, oh, it never, it never occurred to me that you would just take something and put it on the internet. And it's like, for who? It's like, well, don't worry about for who. So it seems like you kind of fell into some natural like habits that leads to success. I suppose does that make sense? Makes well, sense. I was lucky in that my first internship. Halton Mifflin, which is a book publisher, and so I'd had a chance to work in publishing and see how books get made, so to speak. Also, when I went to grad school, I worked with, uh, I had a lot of great teachers who had published a lot, and they okay. just gave me a good, they gave me a good sense of what you'd need to do to do a project. Also, in a lot of these classes, we had to write book-length stuff. Most of my stuff was not very good, but it gave me a sense to understand when looking at, you know, when there's 15 to 20 other people all going through the same exercise and you're seeing all the different ways they're trying to grapple with writing a novel or see how the see how it gets made see talk with people who are really expert and edited a ton of books just getting their insight because not of not every book is the same yeah so it's like every book has got its own sort of like organizing principle to it and so when i was writing success by design the print the organizing principle came out of it when i was it i was sharing it with a, I, I reached out to 10 people i really trust and i sent them a draft of it and i said what do you think and some of them were like yay it's great and some of them said the organization feels really wrong it was organized from uh a to z and so they're saying this book feels totally wrong would a designer really want to start a book where the first thing they're reading about is accounting that doesn't make sense there needs to be some other way to organize this material that's going to make more sense and so I had to really step back for a couple of weeks and look at the book and think about it. And I ended up realizing that everything in the book was about how you interact with people. Mm. Like that pe people are really the, the lifeblood of a creative business and yeah. like how you interact with clients and the things that you're designing for and how you think about working with others is like so f was the fundamental. Like it's not about money, it's about people. So once that light bulb went off i reorganized all the content around the types of ways you interact with people and it kind of it fell together into it it, it fit it finally fit it felt like it was done structurally so then i could just go in and spend a month or two of rewriting the content to make sure it felt coherent yeah that's the key thing you know i think you bring up quite a few times is trust and all that kind of stuff i mean that's key at the end of it of course it's business and it's a machine but it's a machine based off of humans and we're very finicky odd creatures and there's all these things that make or break a relationship and when it comes to work and currency and time exchange you have to have all these things in place in order for for you to have a successful experience and I think it's. I think it. I think you nailed out some really key elements, you know. And I think trust was a was one of the big things that I I kept seeing many times, and I couldn't agree more. Another thing I really appreciate is is um you know I can get on my high horse as the designer like you know poor me blah 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 I don't get paid or whatever, but it's cool to I I think it's always important to see both sides of the spectrum right, because you get a you get a better experience as to your valuable role you get to understand your role from everybody everybody else's personalities and experiences and and you know from a company standpoint so i thought it was really cool you had like a bill of rights for the client um which i thought was rad um, because it was cool for me to see from the other side of things and now that i'm getting i'm becoming more of just more than just like a designer that helps people into becoming almost like slowly becoming my own company 
and and having to hire help and stuff I'm, I'm starting to really see the trials and tribulations that all these companies must go through and how challenging and hard it must be to con to maintain all this stuff you know um, but I thought it was cool that you had different um, vantage points basically of the industry um, because it's not just one-sided at all it's 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 the client it's the employer and then it's the employee and then all those other things that come along with that, which is like the culture and all those things we can talk a bit more about. Um, I thought there was a cool thing we should talk, probably talk about is like effective uh, client services. That was one of the chapters I enjoyed. Like, you know, these different um, services and, and the uh, being effective on them, like quality of your design work, uh, frequency of your contact with your employer or your um, or the client, um, quality of the contact, like, you know, maintaining good quality, um, you know, attention and all that kind of stuff and listening, um, taking notes, um, acknowledging things, uh, maintaining personal connections. I thought that was another thing that kind of tied into the trust aspect, which is, was, um, being a, being a human being rather than, you know, a, a machine. You also mentioned like, it's really important to meet, in, um, face to face. And, and I completely agree with that as well. As much as the technology in the digital age, we noticed that because we worked digitally um, and remotely, but we also worked in the same office, there's a disconnect, but there's also, um, we're still, as humans, um, we need that face-to-face, -face, you know, which I thought was interesting. Do, do, you, do you think with the technology that's out nowadays, do you feel that it's okay or it's it's getting a little bit better? Because we, we, we use, like, Google Hangouts, and it seemed to work really well. Yeah, I, I think... I think it comes down to there's so much communication that's not verbal and especially when you're dealing with things like in the domain of art and entertainment and gaming and stuff like that, you there's a lot of explaining through the hand waving and I mean that in a good way, meaning there's this thing and it's moving over here and there's this flow and it's like sometimes it's easier to just be having a conversation with somebody else so you can like map it out visually yeah. and really explain it and once it's just an email or you're just sending around static artifacts it's like it's very hard to sort of come to consensus and align around about what you need to do what direction you're going to take with something and so there's been it's been really great to see the bandwidth increase on the on like our internet connections and tools like google hangouts and skype have just been really fantastic for doing remote collaboration i work at a global company we have studios all over the world and so when i'm working with other studios it's really great to be able to break from email or IM to be able to get to escalate it into something where you can have a video interaction. Sometimes it's great to just, we'll just pull up in, you know, our video communication and have our whiteboards there and be whiteboarding together. Yeah. And like those kinds of things are where technology really wins and helps to acknowledge some of those gaps that happen yeah. in terms of how you collaborate. So it's like, I can't imagine in some cases not having that face-to-face -face connection and yeah, it's really hard to just stare at a phone while you're talking to somebody. It's like you're missing you're missing so much, so much essential contact and connection as part of that. What's that whole percentage like? Um, how many? It's like there's communication is like you know, twenty percent verbal and the rest is visual or something like that. Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy when you think about it. Um, just because of how we adapt and react to this, our different using our different senses to pick up all these little finite things that, um, if you're not aware of what are happening, um, they're happening whether you know it or not. And when you disconnect those things, I've had I've had some big issues with just having clients and just only having email contact and, you know, 
um, my ADD and the lack of like paying attention to every word on like a three-page spread of notes and just <laughs> it becomes very daunting and 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 can be very um, discouraging when it comes to designing. So I think the 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 use of new technology has been really cool. It's been it's been like a really good tool. There's a there's this book that I just read. I think I recommended it to you as well. It's from the guys that did um, wrote the book Rework. They did a another book called um, um, Remote. I, th I think they created Basecamp as well. Mm -hmm. um, Thirty Seven Signals. I think that's the name of their company. But they they just talk about like their experience with it and the whole idea of of remote work and using technology and computers to have you know, so you're not just sitting in traffic and, and can, you know, ruining the the environment, but you're you're able to go, you know, work from home and be just as effective. So it's cool to see where the modern workplace is going, and 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 I'm on the cusp of it right now because I just I do that. So, but it's interesting the 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 good and the bad, you know. So, yeah. When I was up at Frog and I was with you guys, there's like, it was interesting for me because I'm like, oh, there's everybody around me. Like, oh, this is interesting, you know, like I can't just like walk away and go like, I'm going to go read and get inspired from something else and then come back to it, you know? So there was like, there felt this, there was this urgency of, of creating and it made, it made interesting outcomes, but it was, it was different from what I'm used to now. Like, because now I feel like I, I, I build as it comes and I go in cycles, you know? So but that's the creative work side, I guess. So, but I'm ready. Well, I mean, well, the thing is, like in those situations, I mean, you do the you do the option of always saying, "I need to take a moment to reflect." And totally, I think it's fair for anybody in a collaboration situation to do what they need to do to inspire them. But yeah, it, when you're working, it depends on the types of work or what you're looking to make. I think different types of teams do different types of things. Just because I work on a lot of products and sometimes we're building them and we're actually like doing iterations and shipping stuff, like that requires a different sort of like team collaboration model. And sometimes that team requires really tight integration because sometimes we're taking something and we're we're shipping it like daily, you know, like we're pushing code and stuff like that. Sure. So we have to be we have to be working really tightly and in some cases it's more open-ended and we might do, be doing more more thought work so that gives us some space to play but i would say that a mo one of the models we use here is definitely like every team has a space and the team sits in the space and collaborates together in that and can make of that space what they want because of that there's a lot of awesome stuff that happens you'd be surprised how many I've worked at a lot of places in, in design studios where like the idea of a shared space for a project is like you get like a little piece of wall to pin up some things and that's like <laughs> yeah. that's the extent of it and I think that when you're working on something the way you you psychologically react to the space that you're you to do what you need to do and sometimes you need to put up stuff or you have to be moving around what you've got you need you might have to like bring in technology to like be able to see stuff in different ways or to play with it in different ways to be able to do the work so yeah i think that's some that that's a cultural choice i mean like for how you work and the business that you work in is saying culturally we think this is important it's a value so we're gonna set up the space in this way so you can do it and you know if you don't have that luxury you, like people are just like oh i can't do that it's like well why it's like yeah, it's a culture. It's a cultural thing you work against. 
Yeah, definitely. You talk a bit about culture in the book as well, which I think is incredibly important, especially within a design studio. If you don't have good culture, I've been in all types of different um, studios. I haven't haven't worked in a ton of studios, maybe about f I've been to maybe six or so worked in them. But uh, there's there's a whole there's a whole interesting situation, and and um, you know I've, there's there's good ones and bad ones that work, and and sometimes they get results from both sides of things, you know. But culture is is really important, I feel. And a studio that lacks it or doesn't understand how to keep their machine moving, I suppose, is really wasting a lot of time and effort. I think, you know. So, but though there's there's a there was a lot of really interesting things that I was reading from the book um, that we're talking about, you know, the logistics of, like, let's go ahead and talk about like seeking a client. Do you mind if I go through the book kind of like this? Does that bother you or is that okay? This is fine, yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. I mean, if and we can jump away from anything else too if you just like you don't want to talk about the book or whatever, but I just felt like um because because of your your ability to offer such a great thing to the the community, I felt like we should definitely capitalize on exposing it and, and talking about, you know, the key aspects from it, you know. So, and if anybody's sure. interested and if it applies to them, they can always just get the book and use it as a tool but one of the things you were mentioning was like seeking out a client and you had a lot of really interesting things to say about the things that you've learned personally and through other people can you recommend or kind of give up some ideas about like you know seeking out a client and then also another thing i thought was interesting is how to seek how to see um, the red flags when there's a bad client there's a lot of tell signs that um that people are unaware of and a lot of times people don't see it and then they're stuck in that situation and then you're just kind of screwed because you're in bed with like a bad person kind of or just a really shitty relationship or you've set yourself up for failure with like the way that you communicate with them so i don't know if whatever whatever topic i just barfed at you you want to just go ahead and talk about a little bit about that well i'll do my best to co cover as much as that as i can but damn right remind you will. me if i remind me yeah remind me if i miss anything no it's okay so, go ahead so so let's put it this way it's that there's different stages that a designer goes through as they become more mature and how they look to work with companies that are or individuals whoever the people are that want they want to work with and you know someone who's right out of school they often say oh i don't have a lot of choice because you know i'm really hungry i don't have a lot of portfolio here but i want these are the kinds of companies i want to go work at and they start banging on their door and when you're doing the business in that space where you're sort of fresh out of school there's a mix of things that people do to try to get sort of that first job or the first freelance gig. Well, obviously you have to have some work in your portfolio that represents the kind of thing you want to be doing. If you don't have that, it's going to be really hard to step into space if you don't have sort of evidence that you're good at it. So like the first thing is like, make sure you've got some projects, whether they're personal or you get some, some a little bit of paid work representing what you want to do the kinds of companies you want to work with. So you have to do some soul searching around that and just be like, I'll take what I can get. So it's like doing that makes it so much easier because then you can make sure that you go to events and introduce yourself to people, that you write emails to people that you admire, that you look up to, not to just be like, hey, I want a job, but just be like, I appreciate the insight that you provide to me. And that's something where they can learn more about you and potentially come into contact with what you've done. Uh, you might share your work on the internet. You do a good job of that in terms of just getting your work out there and making sure people are aware of it. Sharing that you have a point of view that is relevant to the community that you want to be working within. 
it's like a lot of that stuff is just as important as just being really forthright and reaching out to people and saying, I would really like to work with you if there's any opportunities. So it's like a very, you have to serve a holistic strategy of how you're going to do it because otherwise you're just going to get whatever comes in the door organically. And I think that's only a percentage or a fraction of the work that any designer should be doing if they're going to be freelance or running a business. It's not just a matter of sort of like being very reactive and being like, I'll either say no or yes to what comes in the door. It's more like there's the things that I want to cultivate outbound as clients or businesses I want to work with and things that are inbound that come out of just sort of the the things that I've set up that market me in the world. It's the balance of those things and knowing when you need to be doing more of one than the other. To that, I think that's like the magic mix. And so in the book, it's very systematic about how I remember one of the first design studios I worked at, they didn't do any business development. They just had a really, they had a website and they had really strong personal relationships with some businesses and the businesses would call them up and they'd take some projects and we'd do them and then we'd build them. And you know, that worked really well for a period of time, but it doesn't work well when all of a sudden, if you're working, doing a ton of work for one client, that business, the client goes out of business and you're just sort of like, well, where am I getting at my work next? Well, you don't have any outbounds relationships that you've been working on building for the point in time that you want to potentially work with the new client. The really, what they're doing really excites you. It's something that you're really passionate about and you want to get into doing. It's like you have to start from scratch and it can take months to sort of get to the point that you've found something that you want to collaborate on that makes sense for the both of you and you want to do it. Yeah. So I think that's, so I think that's like the, the first, the hard lesson for anybody if they're freelancing is sort of like stepping back from being like what's coming in and just being like what do i want like yes. if i could work with anybody who would that be and just being like Follow what's your the way in which i'm getting yeah yeah and i mean sometimes you don't know what you don't know you sure. might be like oh i totally want to work with uh you know i want to really want to work with the fitness company and but i've never just worked with a fitness company before it's like you don't know what you're getting into but you know the type of work that you want to do it's going to teach you whether it's something you want to do or not yeah, you have to yeah. sort of like be prepared to get into that. You have to do it. Yeah, of course. One of the things, because I get a lot of people asking me about like just tips and hints about, you know, the industry and blah, blah, blah. And I, the biggest thing that I say, and it's funny because I, in your book, you had a case study that kind of proves against what I think, which I thought was great because it's good to hear. I love different perspectives, you know, and as, as long as they're valid and they're, they're worthy which i felt yours was um because you broke it down analytically and stuff uh, i thought it was great the biggest thing that i usually tell like students or anybody that's asking me like you know how can i do this this and that i always say the most important thing at least to me and the people that i'm around or the the within the industry that i work at is like you just have to be the best at what you do um and that's very vague and, and broad but it's like if you want to be a designer like look at the best like look at your favorites and then um put yourself against them in a sense where it's like healthy competitiveness where um and then you build yourself up from there you know and 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 be honest about it and and, and through that journey you'll be you'll discover you won't become like them at all you'll just become your own person but um the thing is, is that every the, the way my path worked is that i did that i tried my best and then the world reacted to it and then everything has come from that it hasn't been like i haven't been focusing on just like you know contracts and stuff like that or you know how to run a business it wasn't necessarily that it was just about like following my bliss which all i wanted to do is create and design and draw and do cool stuff and then everything else came from that like it was like a secondary like everything else just kind of came along with it and i think you mentioned like a company in your book where you're just like okay here's our business model like we're gonna do some cool shit 
throw it on the web, and then just hope people are going to respond to it. And then if nobody comes in through the door, then you're just kind of doomed because you might not be honest or forthright about your opinions about the work that you're doing, or you might not have it set up where you get the right exposure to your work or what have you. And so that can be a, a problem, but it worked for me. It was very successful for me. And that's just kind of how I, that's how I look at it. But I could see how it could be a total um, clusterfuck if you're not, you know, setting up for the right proper amounts of success, you know? And, and that's very vague to say, like I say, when I'm saying it now, when the words come out of my mouth, just be the best. <laughs> it can be very uh, subjective and, and it can be very vague, you know? So, but well, look at it this way. We'll look at it this way. I think, I think you've got a fair point of view. I mean, I'm, I have a similar path in that I just threw everything I had against trying to be as good of a designer as I could to get where I wanted to go. And for myself individually, I think that's possible, but it doesn't scale very well. So like if your business has a couple of employees and you say, okay, everybody here, you have to throw everything against it. And it's sort of like, well, not everybody has a, sh a stake in that business. Like yeah. they're not responsible for it as like the owner and principal. Once you start adding in more people, it's like different people, have different motivations for what they want to accomplish yeah. as being part of a business. And so I think anybody, when they're starting out, they have to think really about like, I can, I can do that for so long to really like improve my craft and be great at my game and try to improve what I'm doing. But like, it doesn't scale as a business over time. It's not something you can sustain over a career effectively, unless if it's like your superhero. And <laughs> I think I think I think if everybody and so I think if everybody looks at themselves as being like I'm a superhero, like that kind of proves the point that not everybody can perform at that level and be that successful. So there needs to be grades of success, and you have to put some structure in place if it turns out that it's not the way you're going to be able to support yourself as a career. Okay, cool. So that's good. I mean, that's good for me personally to hear because I feel like, you know, sometimes I come to the end of myself and I'm just like, I just can't keep running this marathon at the speed that I'm going, you know, because I burn out or I don't have time for vacation or just, just to rebuild, you know, or to, to learn new things so that when a client comes to me, I can be like, well, I have these options that you like, but I can provide this whole nother thing, you know? And when I don't set myself up for that, like I can tell that eventually I'm going to burn out, you know? and um for, for many yeah. companies and many things that i've seen so it's just it was really interesting to hear and to read too that um just the thing the writing on the wall that i'm just kind of turning my head away from you know because i want to be superman you know <laughs> and i want yeah, to well you can be you can be superman to a certain point but in doing so often you lose the things that helped to round out who you are as a person like and your, your life <laughs> yeah exactly it's like you have to think about your life as the metropolis it's like you show up at the daily planet but you have to take care of the city yeah it's like stupid ass city <laughs> well also it's like a lot of designers never think about how they cultivate the way they run their business to provide the space to do that like yeah in the chapter in the book about how you set up your hourly rate if you're going to be a freelancer or run a business and like bill for services yeah there's an equation and i go through the equation of like how you calculate this and I'm saying like, hey, you include four weeks of vacation paid a year. Yeah. And that's on top of and that's on top of a buffer that you only have X amount of utilization, like sixty-five percent utilization. So realistically speaking, you could not be working for eight weeks or more, maybe longer out of the year, and yeah. you wouldn't you would be net positive, you'd be earning good money. And it's like a lot of designers don't think about that time in that way and Creative types in general don't. I can be, yeah. 
I could be, yeah, I could be doing less and having more time for the personal projects or things that I'm really excited about and then have time to be able to go take a vacation and not think about work at all yeah. and be able to like really recharge as a person and cultivate my personal relationships. Yeah. So I think it's kind of like, it's a, I think so the holism I'm trying to put into the book is just saying, hey, designer people, we've all worked crazy hard. I am a crazy hard worker and I, I love to make stuff and that's part of why I, I do what I do and part of the reason why I took on doing the book on top of just, you know, being a practitioner. And so in the end, I was saying, in the end, what are the things I can do to build the right structures to be able to be successful in the business, to be successful as a craftsperson and an artist, and then be successful as just a person that has time to be a person and not, and like drop all that identity yeah. and just be able to enjoy life and be able to do that because all the other stuff has been set up in a way that gives me enough freedom and just enough structure and just enough freedom in the structure. Just, you know, like just enough process, just enough of this to make it easier. Yeah, totally. Which is, which is really great. And it's brilliant. I love that part of the book too, where you evaluate how to make that happen because that's totally important. And I allow, I actually been talking a lot with my wife about the science of that um, because my wife is a financial consultant. So she's able to break down like okay what we cost you know and then and then the depressing part about how much of my income goes straight to you know uncle sam which i don't know what the hell their taxes go to <laughs> that's a whole nother topic um and then um also leaving time for you know family vacation and retirement and all these other things you know because i mean there's a huge chunk of cash that you need to put away just for retirement if you plan on you know retiring <laughs> and there's all these other things too and there's a lot of tips and all those kind of tricks as well but i think that the smart way that you've evaluated it was to 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 have it so that you don't you don't destroy yourself or get completely burnt out because if you do go too fast if you do go too quickly or you don't save up you're like you know it, i mean but there's there's those two balances of life where do you feel that you and your wife fit in are you guys frugal and like enjoy um reserving money and time for certain things or do you guys live in the middle that's where my wife and i are at or do you like are you super lavish and like like to have crazy shit and don't care about like if you have no savings and you kind of burn all the dollars up like where are you personally if that's too personal you don't have to tell me but <laughs> how well, much money do you have and how no, exactly <laughs> like, no so, no i'm just yeah, flip, like personality the flip type side of that uh, question is yeah the flip side of your question is so sort of like and when are you going to take me out for one of those lavish things so, <laughs> dude so, next time you're, you guys are down in san diego all dinner dude we'll go have dinner man it'll be awesome we're gonna take you we're gonna take you to taco bell dude taco bell baby yeah <laughs> well do you come from humble beginnings you, i mean do you uh or do you, do you come would, from privileged would, or I, I would say it's a balance. So I grew up in Northern Virginia and I was lucky in that I was able to go to a school, a state school, University of Virginia. And this was back when state schools were relatively affordable and my parents were able to support that. So there, it was, it was something where I, the clock really didn't start for me until I graduated and then got the reality of like, okay, I had an extremely low paying job coming out of school and I went to grad school and you know, starting from zero yeah so that was that was a great experience for me and and then moving when i moved to uh seattle from the northern virginia area what happened was the uh 
9-11 happened right when we got there and all the work for design and marketing and advertising totally dried up for about six months. So I was out of work for a very long time. Mm. Because so of 9-11, was, it was just kind of shocked the city. Is that what happened? Yeah, a lot of the places that I'd been talking with about potentially working at that point in my career, which was more like a junior designer, graphic designer, mm-hmm. they just they were not doing work for their clients and they were set up to be doing like they were just curtailing a lot of their marketing and advertising functions based on what had happened in the US. And uh-huh. it, it was really fascinating to me because all of a sudden it was just like, well, I'm just going to keep sending out resumes and trying to get interviews for months and months and months, but wow. there's n- no work to be had. So you, you can only live for so long doing that. Yeah. And so <laughs> that worse. was, so that, that definitely gave me a very, a, a clear perspective of like, okay, I don't want to do that again. What do I need to do to not do that again? Yeah. And that's so bad. That's a bad yeah. experience. <laughs> so, so to answer, so to answer your question about sort of like where we land. So, I've been really lucky in that I do a lot of research at work where I'll go and travel around the U.S. and just interview people about different topics. And one of the areas I've had the um, the opportunity to focus on in the past few years has been on sort of financial empowerment and how people save money and how people just understand money in general. And so going through that process and seeing sort of the range from people who are doing well all the way through to people that are really struggling has was really eye-opening for me and made me realize that and this actually fed into some of what was in the book is that the people seem to be most successful that didn't have a lot of money meaning the people who wanted to sort of like build their um build their retirement or be able to like really build their foundation immigrants for what they wanted have to that do trait yeah they were like, but I wouldn't say just only that, but people have sort of realized that like they were really struggling to have good financial habits around how they spend their money and save their money. Sure. It wasn't, it wasn't a matter of like following some rigorous and super meticulous budget. It was about figuring out ways to like automate a lot of the things they need, a lot of those habits. So it would be like, okay, pre-tax, I'm always going to put X amount of my salary to retirement or after I get my paycheck, X amount of the paycheck automatically goes towards savings or these bills or like they're finding ways to be really clear about like how much money they actually had and working from that and being very deliberate about how they use credit. Mm. So so that's that's definitely informed my worldview in yeah. terms of like what what to do and when and how to do it and being thoughtful about that. I also live in the Bay Area and the Bay Area is hell is not an easy place to live depending on what you want to do. So I have to be thoughtful about that too. Yeah, it's one of the most expensive cities in the States. Yeah. Um, probably like it's what top five, I think, was last time it's, I saw it's num- I think it's number one. Whoa, number, man. N- number crazy. two is New York. Or number one, in New York and San Francisco fight for number <laughs> one. I'm more expensive. I'm, well, I mean like Manhattan shit. It's like... Pfft. You had to pay money just to like walk on the sidewalk there, I imagine. So <laughs> Yeah. I like you can yeah, you can sleep in this cubby. If yeah. we'll give you this cubby, this cubby will be two thousand dollars a month. Yeah. Sleep in. It's people that are willing to do it though, so whatever. Yeah. Uh, I'd rather go live in Kauai and just like chill and then use Skype <laughs> and then live in paradise and just cruise. Just go swimming mm-hmm. in the sea <laughs> but to each his own you know it's, it, the the whole city life is interesting one i like visiting uh san francisco but yeah it's an expensive city every time we go there we're always like shit man like just the hotels alone it's like yeah this is really expensive but uh it's it's cool though i mean for what it is it's a it's a really cool city full of culture and stuff and 
Yeah, a lot of smart people up there too. A lot of progressive thinkers up there. It's very European. It's one of the most European cities, I think, in the States from my understanding. So mm -hmm. my experience, but no, that's cool. So you never answered the question though. So are you frugal? What? No, I'm joking. Are you? No, uh, I am. I, I'm, I lean more towards the uh, conservative. I would say like, uh, if you say like in the middle to, to frugal, I'm between those two. Yeah, my wife and I are the same because I think there's, there's a, a bit of security and the idea of having this little nest egg. Although you never know when it's all going to come crashing down because, you know, it all could. <laughs> the well, Doomsday event. <laughs> well, part of it also came out of when I interviewed a lot of people who ran studios or like people that were uh, understood finance is that they would always talk about the known, the known things you'd have to deal with. It's like, okay, at certain points in your life, there's certain things you're going to have to deal with and you're going to need money for that. And then there's things you don't know might happen and mm -hmm. you're going to need money for that independent of just paying the rent. Yeah. And so I'd never, so like having somebody lay that out for me in detail and like, just be like, you would probably not thought about these things yeah. made me have to say, okay, you know, what's the right way to think about being prepared for this? And, and how could you, you turn know. the other cheek when you have like, you know, somebody telling you such a thing, you know? So it's kind of like goes hand in hand, I guess, you know, which makes total sense getting that kind of advice from somebody there's this um i brought it up before there's this thing i can't find the article but a friend of mine sent it to me and i thought it was pretty valid he was saying there's a certain amount of money that you make when you're a worker or salary and it's like around the 70 to eighty thousand range where after that it just becomes kind of a a void an added stress an un unnecessary kind of thing when it when you're actually working physical hours for the um for it do you did you did you encounter anything like that because i've noticed like there my life quality goes down after a certain number and i don't realize it because it becomes kind of a, a monstrous beast of experience but there's a number that you know around that range did you experience that with all your travels not so much no uh no because it's not just a matter Varies. of what you make it's not it's not just a matter of what you make but a matter of what goes out so it's kind of like it's the inflows and the outflows. So it's kind of like someone's just like, yay, I make this is actually this is a good example. Yay, I make 100K because I have this great job, but I have these massive student debt. And yeah. so I'm going to throw everything I've got against that and eat ramen for two years to not be under a 10 year loan. Yeah. So it's kind of like people are in these unique circumstances. People, everybody's got their own unique circumstances. And I think it's a matter of understanding sort of like what's coming in and what's going out. It's like once you get to a certain point and you have enough coming in, then yeah, it definitely, I, I would assume it would change your perspective, but uh, it's it's not something I've seen where it's there's sort of like this tipping point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. I felt like there was, um, for me, it feels like... Um like the Biggie Smalls thing, I just quoted him the other night, the more money, more problems, you know? So, <laughs> but I, I've, oh. I've encountered that though. So. Actually, I think the study you're talking about, I think I've read this, the study said that if people, when people are earning above a certain amount mm -hmm. and they, they have it and they're banking it, they are often having to do more and they realize at that point that time is more valuable than money. Yes. And the, they want the to flux. find ways to reclaim time yes. rather than they're willing to dismiss or turn, re reduce the amount of money to increase the amount of time. Absolutely. However, That's it's the quality it's, of life. Yeah, exactly. So for, for them, it's a matter of finding the, the, the dial is being turned to figure out how to create the, the harmony. The, 
the harmony. Although my wife had a really good point a couple of years ago when I was talking about how, you know, what's the ideal work-life balance? She's just like, well, what happens if you just remove the concept of balance? And I was just like, whoa, that's a very, it was a very Eastern thing to do, but it really changed my perspective about sort of like how, when you do what you love or when you're focusing on something, it's like, it's not a matter of being like, I have to do this much of this and this much of this and it's in balance. Sure. Because that, that's like just a concept you're putting on the situation. It's more flattening it has helped me to sort of better understand some of this stuff. Oh, that kind of maybe kind of helps cancel out some of those internal dialogue, I guess, where it's more like I'm enjoying what I'm doing right now in the current moment. So that's all that matters. Is that what you're saying? It's I think that's a, a part, I think that's a part of it is that I'm enjoying what I'm doing right now, but it's also a matter of being like, don't beat myself up because I'm not achieving balance right now. Uh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Because, because it, I've had that happen actually a lot recently where, um, I set all these goals out for myself and I want these balance and all this stuff and I go, oh now I allow these time to myself and then then the time is completely filled and I'm like I'm not getting balance and so I'm yeah. freaking out about the idea that so I'm, not, I'm worrying about a concept rather than actually enjoying exactly. what I should be you know um, the disconnect exactly. you know I don't have a good I'm not really good at disconnect sometimes I'm good at it but I get I don't know I constantly fall back into the same um, holes um, because I, I'm in charge of myself and I'm I think I have some problems internally or something where I constantly come come back to the same issues um, but um, yeah that's interesting that's an interesting way of looking at it too and like you said it is very Eastern it's more of like a you know becoming uh, at peace with the the moment that you're in because you know if you're in the future you're stressed in the past you're depressed but in the net and the current you're existing you know and whether it's good or bad, you're acknowledging it, that moment of existence, which is good, I think. So, well, what matters? Yeah, what matters is the choice that you're about to make. Yeah. So it's kind of like, so it's kind of like, I'm beating myself up because I'm, I did not achieve balance while you're in the past, and you're in the, you're about to make a decision that is in the future. So yeah. it's kind of like, well, what's the next decision I'm gonna make? Like, well, what's the right thing that respects, you know, my values? Might be more appropriate than being like, I need to have balance now. Yeah. That's true. That's a good way of looking at it too. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, I mean, that's a great thing to to really think about. Another big thing that we need to talk about, and I thought you did a really good job explaining it. Besides from the hourly rate, which is really important, we should dive into that as well. Um, but is the uh, contracts? How important that is. I just recently um, I did this thing where um, we had talked, I had two freelance specials on the podcast where I had my friend Jake Sargent. We kind of talked about our experience as freelancers, kind of giving tips to anybody that's starting out. And, and it's my crude interpretation of this stuff. If you want a better understanding of this stuff, you should get some of these books, especially David's, because he breaks down a lot of stuff, especially about like you're now your hourly and all that kind of stuff. But um, I think it was really cool to talk about the contracts. I just recently shared um, a rough template client agreement template and a client contract agreement on my website and it and it and it was really cool because the response is so great and everybody was really into it and I think that um I think it's really vital and important and my contract is just like a very rough template and we have to obviously augment it and change it per client but in your book you really bring up a lot of things and there's a couple really important clauses that I thought was important for us to touch base on one was um that you should always retain the rights to the work um, until you're paid. So if the client doesn't pay you or whatever and they use your work, 
um, a la the new old boy movie with the the poster. Did you hear about that whole debacle? Did you? Yeah. Well, I well I, there's also a de- there's a couple debacles recently. There's one about old boy. Yeah, the old boy poster thing. Yeah. Yeah. What do, what's your where... thoughts on that actually? Huh. Well, my personal thoughts on that is that it's a really tough situation to take on that type of project without a contract. Totally. And it looks to me like, it look, if I remember correctly, the rules of what happened, like the, the logic of what happened is that he's like, this, the, the studio reached out to him and said, hey, I'll do this stuff. It'll be awesome. This is sort of like a handshake. Yeah. There wasn't anything that was signed contractually. And once that happens, it's extremely hard to protect your rights as a freelancer or somebody that's a support, supporting a project. Totally. So in the so in the end, when he wrote that open letter to Spike Lee, it was that was a, da- a dangerous place because like the client didn't know anything about the process of how it was done. He has no business obligation to him. Yeah. Other other than that, if he had had sort of like the, just felt bad about it and said like, oh, that's too bad, but like you know, he had no responsibility to the situation. It was really from what our understanding, yeah, he didn't, yeah. I mean, yeah, because so who knows what his experience was with it all and stuff. I thought yeah. his I thought his response was 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 too. I don't know. My personal, I thought if I were to respond to such a thing, I would have said like, you know, um, I'm gonna look into it, you know, rather than just kind of like insulting the guy back. Even that was because I could see him being insulted by it. But then mm-hmm. it, it became like a pissing contest, and then the internet, yeah. the internet's just like, okay, you don't understand what you're talking about, and it's like, you know, I I thought. When I had looked, when I had read the case in the beginning, I was like, oh, okay, like, first off, the designer is at fault because, you know, like we said, it's a handshake thing and you just don't do business like that. Um, we're not living in like the 1920s or whatever when people would do that. And then, uh, you know, then you do all this spec work, which is another big topic I really want us to touch base on and talk oh, yeah. about because that's a huge uh, issue in the design community or community in general. Um, and then you do the spec work and then um, they obviously use it. And then, you know, it's like it's like it's like if you pl- if you go to play poker and you're just like, hey, everybody at the table, look at my cards. It's like what you have. No, you have no value anymore, you know. So the mm-hmm. contract is, a, is an important thing. And I thought that the principles that you use state in the book were really key, which is, the, you know, like make sure it's written clear that you own the rights to all your work until it's paid for, you know, and if in, it's in full, in, in full, full, in full, exactly. Yeah. And that's, and that's, and that's just part of the agreement, you know, and that should be understood and agreed upon. And, and, and if you don't set these things up, um, you know, you're just going to look, you're going to get into sticky situations. And, and luckily for me, I've done a lot of work without a lot of contract stuff. Um, but um, as I get larger or bigger and more successful at this stuff, I'm, I'm looking into doing more of it because it just it's important to protect yourself, you know, um, because people are if you don't if you if not careful, the, the wrong people will step all over you, you know. So another one is uh, if the if the client cancels the cancels the contract or cancels the, the work or whatever halfway through whatever that you should get compensated for the time that you spent on it. That was a, an important thing. There's also a really good talk. I forget the guy's name, but it's uh, it's uh, we'll post a link to it. But it's like "fuck you, pay me." It's on Vimeo. You can just Google it. But um, it's a you know it's a little bit biased, and the guy brings his legal um, um, his lawyer into it as well. And it's a really interesting talk, but it's an empowering one um, for everybody to that if you're interested in this or if you've been screwed over or you're trying not to or you're starting off, like you should check that out because it's a good um good talk good talk as well you know so yeah and there's a 
in in the chapter in the book on negotiation there uh ted leonhardt is quoted who's he's a friend and he tells a story about leverage and how like designers like when a client comes to you and they're like oh i really want you to do this great concept art for this movie or this game or whatever it's like you have the leverage in that situation because they need something that's going to help like activate what they're going to do and yeah. so you're valuable you, yeah and the contract is like the scale that balances the money they're going to provide to you for the quality the work that you're going to provide to them that helps activate what they're going to do and it's like without the scale there's no me relative measure or translation from what you've provided to them like there's no way to balance it out yeah so so i think it's really important that designers recognize that it's not a matter of the client being like just show it to us and you'll make it it's like whoa well actually i have something you need the service is very important to you. Why don't you value it in a way where I am able to provide you what you need within the boundaries of a contract that is protecting both of us? It's not just protecting me; it's protecting you. Yeah, it's a it's a mutual agreement. It's yeah. a handshake. Yeah, it's it's a it's a paper handshake. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And if you don't do it, if you don't do it, you're just you're setting yourself up for you know possible big time drama and i'm dealing with some really big time drama with a massive company too and lawsuits and all kinds of bullshit that's that's really it just sucks you know and there's a thing that you mentioned as well like you know if the contract you know turns into some kind of legal debate or legal thing um how you mentioned it's like nobody really wins you know like unless it's like a, a mass amount of money then it takes effort to put into it but once you start getting into that whole experience, it's like the lawyers cost money, it costs tons of time, it's total uh, added stress and anxiety. That's just, this sucks to have in your life, you know? So yeah, just a good, avoid yeah. it, just avoid it by having a good contract, you know? And if you don't know how to draft one up, you know, take a little bit of your earnings and, and put it aside to, to, to contact a lawyer that specializes in this stuff and have him draft you up the things that are really important to you to protect you, you know? Mm -hmm. And then it's it's worth its weight in gold. Um, it's so key. And then you have resources like David's book or um, just the links on my website for templates. You know, like basically we're wiping your ass. So you know, <laughs> you know, all you gotta do is just fill in the blank if you if you really think about it and put some time into it. But it's 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 an essential part of business. You know, and if you're working for yourself or you're working um, as a freelancer or doing whatever for companies, you know, you gotta protect yourself. So. It's, yeah. it's just it's just part of the game so i thought contracts was really a, a really vital thing to your book that i felt was in, important to talk about alongside uh, can i, can yeah. I throw another one in there so how dare the, you my no wife is, yeah my <laughs> wife has been using my wife is a freelance writer and uh editor and she uses a plain language contract that's created by the author of this really cool book called hard hard-boiled web design mm -hmm. and so i like that contract because it's an one it's in english and Two, it's got some some like humor to it. I, I thought that was interesting because I mean, like obviously you don't write contracts and scopes of work and things like that to like be, have fun. But I thought it, it did a really good job of showing the human side of it mm. because I think it because you know the the contract is worth the paper and the ink that it's on, and it it's a matter of like to two people who sign the agreement have to respect the agreement for it to be enforced. So. I think that having that, I thought that was a really interesting way of getting at that sort of like shared set of like, we're here to do something together. This is how we're going to work together. This is how we're going to respect each other. It was like baked into the contract. So I think this is worth looking at in terms of like, I've written a number of, you know, fairly formal 
contracts that are very discreet about here's what we're going to do and there's so much time we're going to do it and the legalities of it. Yeah, under, that's understood. So I thought it was a good spin on things where depending on your style and how you like to collaborate with your clients, it can be a really good way of sort of getting a litmus test of like, is this something that they would find acceptable in terms of how we work together? Because it still has all the legally binding stuff, yeah. but it has the language around it that makes it, that lightens it up a bit. And so I, I thought that was something cool that is also worth checking out. Yeah, and I think that's a really good thing that you brought up too. Is if if, if a client, if you propose something uh, casually or openly as as working out a client before you even engage in work, and the client is like, oh, you know, like throwing all these uh, signs that they don't want to participate in such a thing, that's a real sure sign that they're not worth your time, um, and they're not professional either. Too a, a real professional company is going to expect that. And they're going to interact with you on that on a professional level, and the, and you'll get more respect by being like, look, this is how much I value myself, this is how much I value your time. Let's just instead of saying over an email, which I've done before, where it's just like, you know, I'm going to do this, this, and that, and it's based off of email, and luckily everything's worked out. But sometimes uh, when it gets into bigger stuff, um, it's important to have these things in line. And if you don't have them, you're just leaving yourself up for you know, a bad experience, which, you know, a la old boy poster, Spike Lee, uh, tw tw Twitter annihilation, battle death to the troll. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I don't think it's good for anybody to get in that situation. The internet is extremely public now in terms of any of these disputes. I was yep. going to say another very a dispute that's been going on for years is the one between Modern Dog and uh, Target has just dragged on so long. I don't know like, what that you is. Know, yeah, so Modern Dog is a design studio that's in Seattle, and they do amazing illustration and poster work. And they've just they have an amazing portfolio. They have a book you can get from Amazon that's like their history of all the stuff they've done. It's just killer work. Cool. And they uh, they saw someone pointed out to them that somebody they like saw some work that was from Target, and it had some of what looks exactly like one of their designs in it. Mm. And they freaked out. They said, hey, this looks like something we made. And they're like, no, it's not the same. And it's, <laughs> devolved, it's devolved into this epic legal fight where oh. they, they actually, and the modern dog had to sell their house to fund it. Like really immense. Whoa. Yeah, just because they're trying they to- They had to sell the, the dog house? Yeah, they did. They had, <laughs> so that's one that's worth reading up on. And it's been, yeah. document, it's been documented very well over the past few years because wow. it's one of these huge proof points for like, how, can you, how much can you actually protect the work that you do as a designer and illustrator, like Vanilla Ice, exactly. Exactly. So it's like I think like contracts should be set up to, like, think contracts can't protect you from being plagiarized, but mm. it, they can if you, they were the client initially, or you're doing you're in a pitch situation. You're just like you have to pay me if I'm going to be participating in this before you get it. The the rights to use this and just being like super crisp. Yeah, about that stuff saves you from all of these sort of gray area situations. Are you familiar with the whole thing with the Life of Pi and all the? Um, um, why am I drawing a blank? The studio that went under because of the, the whole mess up with that. And are you familiar at all with like, um, all the bullshit issues that's going on in the visual effects community and just all the spec work and then, the companies going under because they're not managed properly or they are, but this the companies aren't making profit off of the work that they're doing. Have you heard anything sure. about this stuff? Have you? Have yeah, you well, I, I remember the, well, I guess it was like six or seven years ago, I saw Kyle Cooper give a talk in uh, Seattle. 
And Kyle I think Cooper it's when is he... the owner of Prologue. He's yeah, just my old exactly. Boss. Yeah, exactly. So this is right when he transitioned from Imaginary Forces to Prologue. Yeah. And I remember, I remember him showing this really. I don't, one of my favorite things he had done in that time period was the Wimbledon mm-hmm. uh, title sequence, which I yeah. thought that was just like a really classy, smart. smart title sequence. And I remember he was like, taking questions from the audience, and I remember somebody asked, like, so you know, what was the process like for doing that? And he said, well. The uh, studio sent out a you know request to all of these different visual effects firms to do spec of it. And I said you know my studio we did it over a few days and then we this without getting paid first. It's like that was my first sort of like aha moment of like um how you guys do things may be different from how I am doing things and working with the studios that I'm at. Yeah. But I've also, I've also worked in advertising. And so when I've worked in advertising, I've had situations in previous lives where, you know, the, the client would come in and say, this is worth $10 million to you, but in order to do so, you have to pitch against these people. And we would like to request that you show some work that is the thing that you'd think you'd like to do if we were to give you this project. So essentially it's like, you're not getting paid, you show up, and you have to, you know, essentially give them a pain. Yeah. If, you give them all the cards in the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, really, it's, it's, it's something where it's one of those vows that I made in terms of like my career and like part of the reason why I was writing the book. And there's a whole chapter on spec work. I wrote a whole chapter, like half of the chapter about spec work is about the reasons why people do spec work. Because I feel like there's this monolithic point of view when you go to like the standards organizations that represent designers like the AIGA. I totally agree with them and all the reasons they have about why you you should not do spec work. Yeah, there's good reasons for it. There's really, there's extremely cogent, logical reasons for it. It's just this immense gamble to do spec work. And in certain industries, there just seems to be this propensity towards like put up to play. And yeah. I think the motion graphics industry and the advertising industry, once you get to a certain scale, the kinds of work you want to do, it's sort of like an assumption. Yep. And these, the only way these companies can make money is if they have enough overhead they make from the projects that they do to cover those dips where they don't win work. Yep. And like when they choose to go and pitch things, they have no chance of winning. Yeah, that's pretty much it, man. Yeah, I mean, from the experience I've had from the many studios that I've worked with on the whole um, quote-unquote pitch work, I mean, I almost feel bad for getting paid for this, you know, because I'm just like, you know, there's a chance that you guys might not win this, and the whole system is messed up and flawed because of that. But the problem is, is if one person does it, the rest have to follow suit, you know. Unfortunately, it seems that way, you know. Well, um, it depends. It depends where you are, where you're at in the value chain, so to speak. Sure. And by that, I mean that. You'd said earlier in the podcast about how sort of like you just have to sort of try to be the best that you can and beat everybody else, but eventually you settle into your own niche or your own like differentiated position. Yeah. It's like you need to get to a place in your career where like if you can just swap what you're doing out with somebody else and nothing changes, then you might want to focus more. Yeah. Do you think it'll never end, the spec work? I think it will never end personally. Oh, it'll never end. But the thing is like, you have to really think about like who is it and who is it never ending for yeah and what are the reasons why they're doing it and what are the values within that organization i've known studios to come into a situation where they've been suggesting or nowadays they there's what i call pay to pitch yeah. which means that which means that you'll have a studio come in and they'll be like okay you're pitching against x other studios here's the brief and we'll pay you 20 grand or we'll pay you 5 grand or we'll pay you a token 
sum to cover your time to be able to produce whatever it is and at the end we own it yeah. that's the way that's the way the industry has evolved to sort of like sweep away some of the ethical ramifications of spe speculative that's, creative that's better but it's, it's, not a, it's right. an improvement it's an improvement but the thing is some organizations aren't good at taking that money and flipping it into exactly how they're going to execute sure so they sure. might be like you know we're getting paid 5k let's invest another 25k of our staff's time to be able to win a project that's worth 100 or 200k where sure. you think where you see where you see the system break down is when that scales very low yeah and somebody says we'll pay you 2k for a 100k project or we'll pay you 500 dollars for a two thousand dollar project like at that point it's like that there's no re spec work makes no sense when you get to that type of in terms of like how the industry works and i think there's sort of like strata i don't know strata what do you call it like there's layers layers it's like to it, it yeah that if you choose to play on that layer you have to figure out how to change your business model to accommodate that is how what you do and you have to be able to absorb potential losses when you choose to do things yeah. that you're not going to you can make make money for yeah if you had a company contact you directly and say hey we really like your stuff and we want you to do this blah 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 can you propose a pitch of uh not a pitch but like a um a possible um, budget of what it might cost do you consider that that's time that needs to be built or do you go um okay i'm gonna go ahead and do this um off the idea that if these numbers work out or whatever that um the job will become you know successful or whatever the experience might be is that something that do you charge do you think it's right to charge also if a company wants to have a blank understanding of how much it will cost you know because i see both sides of it too i think like what i my maybe my mind's dirty or something but i go instantly to like um prostitution to love making i guess you know like with prostitution it's like it's it's uh, <laughs> i've never experienced it but this the idea of what it is it's it's very much like a simple pleasure it's like masturbation it's like it gets the job done but it's not like love making right love making is is the whole client collaboration the experience of that forgive my uh, bad analogies i'm just this is what i my <laughs> you're all don't don't be insulted by me here but um but no i think like that's what it's like dirty and fast and it's but the thing it was what happens is it creates a bad relationship like um the spec work thing you know sorry to bounce all around here but the idea yeah. that you you basically show them like here's everything you know or this is this is what i did for free and they're going to be like oh you did that for free so why am i paying you you know just exactly. do more free shit and you're like uh well i need to put keep my i need to pay my bills uh, my my dog needs to go see the vet all all these things you know like and it and it, and it yeah. it's a bad starting spot for any kind of collaborative relationship the problem i see for yeah. a client is to say like well i'm taking a risk i don't know what your guys going to make you guys can make dog shit or you can make something really cool you know so i see it from both sides i think if a client um my favorite clients are the clients that just kind of trust me they go okay this is your work this is what you've done i can see that this happens and then when i set up a good relationship with them they go okay i trust you they don't have to, there's not like you know can you do this test or can you do this pitch or what do you think about this you know and it's just it's it's just unhealthy really you know unhealthy business yeah. so yeah to circle back to what you're saying earlier prostitution uh, you, well, <laughs> before, before that, Aww, uh, boo. No. <laughs> no, 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 just because just it's important. You asked my opinion on this, and I think it's important to answer that question first, and we'll work our way back to the uh, analogies you've been creating. So, <laughs> I'm just messing. So, 
I love it. So the thing is, you're talking about would you require the client to pay you to figure out what you need to do? And I think it depends on what you're looking to make. So like some things that you're looking to make, if it's if a client comes to you and says, I want you to come up with, you know, like a new identity system for who we are as a business. It's like, well, we have a proven process for how we do that. Or, you know, we know the process that we're going to do it. And you pay us and here's some examples in my portfolio. If you're going to do stuff like concept art, I think it's unfair to have the client be like, show me what you think the direction is going to be before I'm going to pay you to go and figure out what the direction is going to be. Because like you're saying, you're devaluing your services by providing them for free. It's like yeah. going to... It's like going to a lawyer and be like, you know what, lawyer, I really need to, to craft a will for my last will and testament. So how about you figure out what the will's going to say, and then I'm going to pay you for us to finish it. Yeah. Like, you, would, you just wouldn't do that. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's just like, it's basically having a standard for how you deliver services. It's like, okay, plumber, show me how you're going to fix this leak that you haven't figured out where the leak's coming from. Just to like show me that you know how you're gonna well, be able to do plumbing. Exactly. And why is it's, it that the creative industry just continually falls into these pitfalls? Why is that? Why do you think that is? I have a couple ideas, but I want to hear from you. What do you think? Why it is? I think it's because people don't understand the balance between um, design as a practical applied skill mm -hmm. versus design as something that utilizes artistic techniques. So people say like, oh, you love doing design. You're so creative and it's exciting. It's just like, it's a job that I do. Mm -hmm. I have a career in it and it's just like you, I have to show up and do it and go home to yeah. my life. And it's not a matter of like, because I'm an artist, I just light up every time I just sit down in front of Photoshop and start making something beautiful. It's like, that's like, I, that doesn't put food on the table for anybody. Yeah. Unless, I think some people get lost go, in that romantic idea. Yeah, yeah. It's totally romantic. And so, yeah, and I was also going to say that there's a trend in the design industry around uh, if you do really big projects, and I work on a lot of products, like really big, you know, like consumer or enterprise scale products, like mm -hmm. software and hardware and integrated stuff, like the really big things. And in that world, you have to do a lot of work to figure out what it is you're going to make. And then you have to do a lot of work to like scope that. and. I think a lot of that needs to be paid too because, and then this happened in previous jobs in my career where we've been designing websites or applications, really cool interactive stuff. It's like you reach a certain point where they'd be like, we want a proposal. And it's like, well, we can put together a proposal, but to do the discovery, to really know it's going to be a range. Yeah. It's like, it's going to be this sort of like, it's going to be variable and we can't tell you whether it's going to be two bucks or $2 million until we've done X amount of work and we need to be paid for that. And it's kind of like, I think that people who are really good at doing this stuff are very deliberate about knowing the line between what's like providing advice or providing, you know, like point of view that's sort of like at a very high level, part of what you do to just be very strategic. And then there's like, no, now we're in this phase where if we're going to do this seriously, we actually have to do, start doing real work. Yeah, and this is what it's going to take. This is like the the first piece of work we we're going to do together, and what we need to bite off mutually to be able to get to the point that you're going to enter into the really big project and build out what that thing's going to be. And I think just educating, being clear with the people you're going to work with about that. That's the process. Will be like, well, that's not like these people. It's like, well, they're not providing the same level of service that I am. The yeah, quality, the quality of what we're going to do is going to be likely better because it's going to be better informed. And yeah. I think that's one of the major reasons why designers fail is because they're just not well informed of what they're doing. Yeah, they're just yeah. not 
they aren't able to communicate about what they need to do. And that leads to like, oh, situations. Look at the picture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it leads it leads to situations where like right. you're saying the designer is just sort of making something for their pleasure and they put it out there and the client's like, whoa, that's not what I wanted at all. And yeah. And then they're just like reinforcing a negative feedback loop rather than really communicating about what needs to be done. Totally. Everybody's responsible for it. Um, client and our creator, designer, artist, whatever you want to call yourself. It's totally, it's a, it's a, it's a feedback loop. That's, it's important to have every, every bit of the party involved in it. So everybody's is guilty, you know, if, if it doesn't go right, you know, um, I mean, not everybody, but certain scenarios and stuff. So, but, um, yeah, that's good. I mean, I mean, we touched a bit about contracts and stuff and we talked a little bit about spec work. If you're listening out there and, and the company is asking you to do it and you're incredibly hungry, it's up to you. It's, you know, it's, it's the thing is, um, the thing you need to think about is, is, um, eventually you're going to be good, better than needing to do spec work and blah, blah, blah. And, um, people that just do work for free, um, you're pulling down the morale in the system. Um, you're pulling down the industry in a sense where you're devaluing the rest of us, you know, we're not, uh, you, we need to have some sort of value system, you know, and, and when people are just doing work for free or for spec or whatever, um, even if they win it in the end, if they don't win it, it's, 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 it's a harmful thing, you know? So, um, for the, yeah. sheer, for the sheer fact that it is, it's seriously, it's seriously, it's just a harmful, it's not a, it's not a good business model. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, yeah. The metaphor, the metaphor I use for people to like really get it across is like playing roulette. It's kind of like the odds. It's a probability game about yeah. whether you're going to nail it or not based on the amount of interaction you have with the client. And if there's like multiple other people playing the game alongside you, it's like really what are the odds you're playing against yeah. to get to get what you want. And it's like if you're one of five, ten more people just banging out work to prove that you're worth the job, like the probability is extremely low. Yep. And yep. is that really a good use of your time? And it's like just putting it in that like extremely logical way. It's sort of like unless if it's something that you're doing personally for your own personal motivation and it's something where you're putting it out in your portfolio or you like point the clients like, okay, here it is in my public facing site and I've sent it to the copyright office. It's yeah. like you're, you're, you're really not in a position where you're going to be able to be, to really have valued your time and your work. Yeah, it's true. And you want to have that value, you know, or you're, nobody's going to take you seriously and, and the business itself becomes kind of a sham. And that's where the term starving artist comes from. It's, it's, there's a, there's a, there's a phrase for it for a reason, you know, so. But um, I think it's it stops at when people start to be educated, start to educate and learn how to communicate, and then they also um, take a little bit of pride and, and respect in themselves. You know, it's not it's not bad to ask um, for an exchange if you're going to put energy and time and effort into it, which you will, and if you love what you're doing, you're going to put a ton of it into it. It's not it's not a bad thing to ask um, to be compensated for it. Don't feel like it is. Don't feel like it's a bad it's a bad experience or it's a bad or you should, you know, because I feel like that myself, you know, like, oh, should I charge for that? You know, like for things that I would normally just do, you know, but hmm. um, it, you know, there, there's a there's a fine line, though, with all that stuff, too, you know, so um, there's there was five tips in your book at towards the end. I thought were really great that I wanted to make sure I capitalized and touched on because I think we only have like 15 more minutes. But mm -hmm. uh, these five things I felt were great. And they're, and they're actually they they're I read a lot of these kind of books, self-help books or design uh, books or books on just being a better person. And um, th there's a lot of these things that you touched on that I felt like were kind of sh um, 
echoes of these other books but here's the five things that uh, david has in this book that i think that you'll probably resonate with uh, as a listener um, the first one is uh, look for joy in what you do um, like we mentioned earlier it's like follow your bliss i thought that was a great one because if you can't find in what what you do what you're doing then you're then you need to keep searching um, the second one was uh, find a way to get paid for it which is you know that's just able i think that's big part of what the book and how it you know it breaks it down to a science so that you have a, a better source a better toolkit basically um, make your income reliable which is just sustaining it there's a lot of um, really good tips and stuff about how to do such the, such a thing uh, in the book um, monitor your growth um, which I'm personally doing now which I need to really start stepping it up I'm gonna call you and bug you on a personal level <laughs> down the awesome. road. <laughs> you see my growth I have a lot of stuff going on and then uh, don't be afraid of change I mean it's inevitable you know so be aware of it it's gonna happen and be ready for it um, don't throw all your eggs in one basket you know and, and try to be aware of uh, um, what's on the horizon because things are going to change constantly so those are five tips that i thought were really great and yeah man i thought it was rad i could tell that you kind of came to a lot of resolve after all this writing and stuff I th i'm sure those words of wisdom came to you just you know from all this experience you know and doing it and putting the book together and you know experiencing all these thoughts and stuff because i can't imagine how hard that must be to make a book like this i was like ah. Uh, <laughs> it was so gnarly just to like sit through and like, really start to like grasp all the concepts i'm like how can you write this stuff you know but it's it's time in the seat it's like that's word true. after word after word you just yeah. have to like someone someone had asked me for i have a friend who's writing a novel and they're just like can you give me some advice for writing this book i was like you write a word and then you write another word and then you write another word and then you and then eventually, eventually you have to like delete some words yeah and then it's like it, it's it's work but it's, it's work. like but it was great at the it's great when finishing that book i was just like i have two pages i have to fill That's and i was amazing. just like what do i what would it's like if i could just express everything i learned from writing this book in two pages what would be on these two pages and that's where those five statements came from and interestingly i think you kind of nailed the meaning of all of them except the first one has this has come up a couple of times people have been like they said it means follow your bliss and it's like that's one interpretation of the statement, but another interpretation is that sometimes you're in situations where ch things change is happening or they can be hard and you're growing and it may not feel like you're following your bliss while you're growing. And it's sort of like you might have to look for joy in those moments just as much as in the moments where you're just like totally lost in flow, mm, making great stuff, everything's grooving. So it's kind of like a range. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, I just wanted to be clear about that because it's something where at least in my career sometimes i've been like oh this hurts so bad yeah like, and really really you know they're all everybody has situations where things are going great and things are a real struggle and like the people that i have spoken with that are really good at their jobs as people running businesses like studios this has come up in some of the earlier podcasts that you had it was just like you know it's work and there's a lot of sacrifice that happened to make it happen but like there had to be some joy in that it couldn't have just been sort of like at the end of the day, you know, that was totally not worth it. Like there's a reason why that it's over time. It's something you really focus on being able to accomplish. You're learning something like you just have to be mindful of that as yeah. you're going through what you do. And I feel like that helps to put some perspective when you decide to like monitor what your progress and like looking for change. 
when you get to the back piece of the book, when it's done with all the, the content, there's all these like little worksheets and things to go through that help you like put some structure into what you're doing. And the one that I think most designers aren't very good at is every three months, you say like, you know, what am I doing that I'm enjoying? What am I doing that I'm not enjoying? What do I want to change about that? And what are the things that I potentially want to do that could be added into that mix? And how does that change what I'm going to do in the next three months? And like really adapting and changing. And it's like part of that comes from just being like, did I learn something? Did I enjoy it? What I want to keep doing it again? Again, is there something new I want to learn? Am I going to enjoy doing that? How am I going to be able to do that? And like being really thoughtful about that rather than it being a very reactive process of like, oh man, I'm really not liking this. And that goes on for like years. That's yeah. how business kind of. That's a That's how businesses tip, is because they get too tied to sort of like the demands of making the business function, rather than you as like an owner or somebody who's like running the business being like, the business can be a reflection of how I want to curate it. It's like a tree. Yeah, man. That's. I mean, dude, this has been a really awesome talk because there's so much things to apply and to really think about and. You know, it's been really cool to obviously work with you and then understand and experience, you know, I think what really stirred our conversation was when we were doing that work event, when there was like, a, I'm a big fan of like electronic music as well. And um, I think you put on like Disclosure. I was like, ah, oh, hell yeah, this is Disclosure. I'm like, who's who's bumping this music, you know, and then, I, and then it turned out it was you. And then we started talking about music and then, and then, uh, you know, it's just like, oh, well, we should collaborate more and do some other stuff. And then that spawned into all these other things, which I thought was really cool. You know, I think that's, you know, that's an effortless thing that kind of just became what it was, you know. And that's the key thing, I think, about some of the aspects of your book where you just be like, you know, just be a freaking human, you know, like just be a person, you know. Either people are going to like you or not like you for the person that you are. But that's that's just you being yourself, you know. And um, it just turned out that we had a lot of similarities in music and taste and all that kind of stuff. And then also like of life mythology, our life, um, I guess, outputs our outlooks on life and just, you know, spiritualism and all that kind of stuff. So, and it's cool that you, I'm surprised you even listen to the podcast. That's awesome. <laughs> it's cool. It really does surprise me actually when people listen to it. Cause I'm like, I, I don't know, maybe it's because it's just me rambling. I'm like, I wouldn't listen to myself cause I sound like a jackass, but maybe it's all the cool people. Obviously I think that come on and all the awesome things that they have to say, which is totally awesome, which I'm so stoked well, on, but yeah. Another, another way of putting it. And I don't know, after having listened to a lot of your podcasts, I think it's, and maybe the reason why at least I, I gravitated towards it and said, this would be really fun to do is that, most podcasts have a lot of structure and the people who do them, like they can be very produced. So I've done some podcasts where they can be very um, edited and curated, especially yeah. if you look at like listening to NPR and stuff like that, there's this like extremely high production values. Yeah. And, and it's sort of like, it's very fun to actually go the other direction and say, you know, let's just be people and have a great conversation and yeah. not worry about that. And you know, if people are just hanging out at work, doing what they're doing and they put it on and for a couple hours they're listening to it maybe they're not fully focused on what everybody's saying then it's you know it's it's a good experience and it reflects sort of like the casual connection you might have with somebody out in the world and that's you know i think that's really important to cultivate and that's just for me why i thought it would be i was really honored to be on this yeah you nailed it man it's like a fly on the wall you know not everybody's going to get a chance to talk with you about this stuff as extensively because you're a busy person so it's like using this and using technology it's just a great tool you know so yeah, everybody go out and buy his book so he can 
you can go retire. <laughs> no, I mean, lit literally buy it because it's awesome and it's a tool. And, and if you're not reading books, you should because they're great and it's, they're going to help you become a better person, you know? So um, yeah, I, I can already say, feel it helping me, you know? I want my wife to read it too. I, I don't think she will. She, I, I Joy's like, hey, read this book. And she's like, I don't want to read it. <laughs> she wants to relax, you know? So, but after work, I like to read. That's how I relax, so... But um, what, you, what were you gonna I say? Gonna say? I was gonna say, like, along with the book, I've put I've put out on the internet a lot of stuff that's from it, like mm -hmm. all the worksheets that are in it on the are on the internet. On so your blog, I've, yeah. I've, yeah, I've posted them. I have a website for the book. It's um, uh, davidsherwin.com/success. Okay. And that has uh the, the you've seen that there's some talks I've done from it. I've put up publicly. Like, there's my top yeah. ten design business failures. And a couple other things, and there's also like a lot of the worksheets in the book are up there. So I just wanted to make sure those were things that anybody could use publicly. So even if they don't have a physical copy of the book, that's something that they could potentially adapt and build on. Every I'm a big, a huge believer in Creative Commons licensing. So yeah. most of the stuff that I do, it's it's the kind of thing that anybody can non-commercially adapt or change or build upon. You're like so a that superhero. Way, Look at this nice gesture you're doing. Well, I've, I'm a huge, I've done a number of projects that are Creative Commons licensed. I helped create a toolkit through Frog called uh, the Collective Action Toolkit, and that was is something that's used all over the world for helping foster creative collaboration. And that we released that through a Creative Commons license, and it's been tons of people have been taking that and adapting it and making it to new useful things. And I'm just a big believer in that. Designers, we often craft like very static end product things, and I like to make things where it's like clear that anybody could take it and run with it and improve it and find better utility for it. So I've been trying with every project that I do to put out something that is for the community. Like my first book, there's a teacher's guide that's for free and Creative Commons licensed. And it's actually just as long as the actual book. I didn't anticipate it for, for it to be as long as the book, but my wife and I wrote the teacher's guide and we were just sort of like, whoa, this is like its own thing. It's just as long, but it, we knew that it was something that was necessary to really explain what we're trying to do to help people like become better creative thinkers so That's i'm a huge advocate of it i'm a huge advocate of that for the right projects i mean yeah. obviously you can't give everything away for free but i'm a big believer in that there's certain things that are worth giving away for people to build upon and use without sure. any without any motive other than that you know other people can make it so much better than you if you if you if you just let go yeah, absolutely, man. And that's a good way to have it, you know. It's like uh it's a good motto to have, you know. I think I think it's just giving is receiving, you know. And as much as you put out to the world in a giving manner, you get it just back. You might not get it in monetary like money, but you get it back in friendship and in exchange of a good energy which could lift your spirit and make you just create better stuff, you know. So I think it's a good way of of, of looking at it as well, too, you know. So yeah, man, that's freaking killer, dude. And there you go. I mean, it's like, there you go, whoever's listening. You can take the red pill or the blue pill, you know? So, you know, <laughs> you, I would think you should check out every, all this stuff and use all these awesome resources because they're, they'll help you. They'll make you better, you know? And even if you don't agree with all of them, there's going to be something that you'll learn from it. There's going to be some sort of an exchange. And David's put so much effort and work and all his friends in collaborating with this to, to bring forth a lot of really interesting aspects of how to be better at designing and how to be better at um, business, you know, the business of design and all that stuff. So, you know, there's going to be links to the books, um, to David's blog and website and all that stuff at the bottom of the podcast. Um, and like he said, his, his website on here as well. I think you're on Twitter as well, right? So you're posting up. Yeah. All your 
all your food pictures and your all your selfies up there. Check me out, <laughs> I'm a selfie in San Francisco. <laughs> Actually, uh, I'm, people have asked me recently like why I'm not very active on social media, and I think it should be obvious from the podcast yeah. is that I'm really I'm really a real a physical world person. So yeah, I, I do I do use Twitter. It's a change order and Facebook and all that stuff. But for me, like I am a big believer in cultivating real world face-to-face -face relationships. And so when I have conversations with people on Twitter, usually the majority of those people I've met in the real world are people that I know. And which means that I'm actually, whenever I'm out doing conferences, speaking or stuff like that, I'm like trying to just like hang out with people and get to know them. And then that translates into the the community out in the world so yes yeah. so i do i will respond to people on you know on through those channels and it's something that i do peek at every so often but it's not something i interact with like every day it's yeah. something that i i do because it's a great way to have communication and dialogue about a lot of the topics that come up good and the things you. that i write and do but i can't say i use it all the time yeah good for you you should you know that should it should that should be what it is you know so well, awesome it's like your, it's like your timer you yep. know, you've got your timer. You need it, yeah. Or are you going to yeah. go out of control and become addicted to the feedback loop and stuff? Do you have anything else that you wanted to make sure you mentioned before we shut this one down? Have a really great holiday. Fuck yeah. Christmas time, baby. Go yeah. consume, consume, and repeat. Consume and repeat. <laughs> Eat, sleep, repeat. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, enjoy your... You're going to have a vacation, so that's good. Yeah. 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 Good for you bastard <laughs> hey you can take one anytime you want <laughs> i know that's the funny thing right i work for myself and i don't even give myself a break so yeah that's there's a whole the yeah there's, that's the reason i that's the reason i the last chapter in success by design is vacation and the reason i included that is because so many people i knew run businesses were like i haven't taken a vacation in a year i've been taking a vacation in two years i'm so laser focused on making sure the business doesn't fail it's just like dude you're gonna fail yeah you need to like take a vacation yeah totally. and the funny thing is once those, once those people take vacations they come back they're like oh my gosh i'm changing everything yeah like, you get a whole, breath like, of fresh air yeah. yeah perspective shift so yeah which is great mm -hmm. yeah totally yep. valuable that yeah awesome cool man all right well you good yep thanks a lot thanks you, for having me and yeah, really you. appreciate it thanks for kicking mm -hmm. ass dude thanks for your time appreciate it it's, it's, i know it's hard to come by so i appreciate it mm -hmm. and everybody listening too and hope you, hopefully you guys enjoyed it hopefully you guys can take a lot of this away and, and pass it along to all the all the madness so stoked cool man Thanks a lot. Awesome. Have a great holiday. Yeah, you bet. See you, buddy. I want more life. And then make a repair. What do you think? I want more life. And the maker repairs me. I've seen.